But I ain't a conspiracy theory. I'm real. And I'm standing right here. And I know what the truth is. I knocked the shit out of this Chinese virus after about a week. When we talk about black magic, we are talking about Satanism, necromancy, alchemy, witchcraft, worship of Satan, and the worship of dark forces. Welcome to the Wet Wired Podcast. We have a very special episode today. They're, they're all special, though. <laughs> On today's very special episode, this is episode six. A Tale of Two Insurrections, Kazakhstan and January 6th. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. And I'll point out that, unlike in previous episodes, for this episode, I have uh, not my, my usual very fine um, Franzia. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, but uh, this one is uh, Le Dunop Pinot Noir from 2020. It's a French reserve selection. <laughs> 2020 was, it was a good year. <laughs> Anybody who's listening that has spent any time in Japan will be absolutely horrified in the same way that I was every time you go to a convenience store, which they call kombinis, to see the selection of wine. There is typically uh, the kind of standard selection that you would see in like any 7-Eleven or Circle K or all subs in the U.S., where if they do carry uh, any wine at all, it's absolutely terrible. And in Japan, it's no different. But there's one thrilling exception. If you translate the French on the labels of these Japanese wines, it's absolutely meaningless. (laughs) 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 And the, the wine is every bit as good as the French on the label. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know who would do that. I did it just because I'd heard the story and I and I just had to know. I had to know what it tasted like. Of course. So I got a bottle that said it was Cabernet Sauvignon and I decided to try it out and it was absolutely terrible. <laughs> For our first segment, we're going to uh, collectively take the McCarthy Challenge. The McCarthy challenge is where you lose a Senate primary election by getting only 25% of the vote against a single opponent. You try to out-crazy Arizona State Senator Wendy Rogers, and then trash-talk Trump for a year and a half. On January 5, 2022, ex-GOP Senate candidate from Arizona, Daniel McCarthy, made a stand. McCarthy unsuccessfully challenged Senator Martha McSally in the 2020 primary, but you cannot keep this man down. He realized, I think deep down in his soul, he had this realization that he will never be relevant. (laughs) And he has no shot other than to throw down an absolutely ridiculous gauntlet that Trump will never pick up. In a video posted to Twitter, he challenged Donald Trump to a 30-minute debate at Trump's upcoming January 15th rally in Florence, Arizona. This guy, I I had no idea the man even existed. So job well done. The McCarthy challenge worked. He he was totally under my radar. And then out of nowhere, he's all over the place and trending on Twitter. Good job. Daniel McCarthy managed with with this video challenge on Twitter to be trending briefly. And in spite of the fact that he was trending on Twitter, he still only has 8,000 followers. In his video challenge, McCarthy doesn't lay out the to- what his topics might be, 
but he has been known to complain in the past on Twitter about the Arizona 2020 election audits, Trump's constant fundraising, and Trump's support of the COVID-19 vaccines that he developed during his administration. The thing that I think is interesting about McCarthy is that he's car- he's trying to carve this new niche for himself where he's going to criticize somebody like Wendy Rogers, a state senator from Arizona who people might know and if they don't they can look at her look at her profiles on Twitter and get her and see that she's constantly posting QAnon uh like not adjacent just absolute QAnon material talking about sex slaves and adrenochrome farms and global cabals that are controlling everything, all the good QAnon stuff. McCarthy's complaint about Wendy Rogers is that she's not extreme enough. His complaint about Trump is that Trump didn't really bring the things that he promised he was going to bring. He doesn't have anything, any problem with any of Trump's promises. He has a problem that Trump didn't keep them. He wants Trump to be more Trump. He wants Trump to be actually Trump, not just talk like Trump. His complaint about the 2020 election audits is that they didn't find anything. His, he's, he's concerned that they were not performed correctly. <laughs> like this, is, <laughs> this is the level that McCarthy is, com- is, is working from. It, it makes me think of those, those flat earthers who do the experiments, and then as soon as they do these experiments they discover that they've disproven their own theory with their own experiments. And then they say, well, maybe we need to do another experiment. <laughs> right. Well, like, like that guy in, uh, I, I want to say Nevada that built the rocket and ended up killing himself in the crash. <laughs> <laughs> so, and his problem with the vaccines, which he refers to as gene therapy sauce, is that Trump supported them. That's his criticism against Trump. And it, Trump, you know, he's, he's such an egomaniac that he can't let that one go. He knows all of his supporters hate the vaccines. He, that was such a fixture of his presidency. He just cannot let that one go. I think he inevitably will because he won't have a choice. He's going to have to put that down. But right now, that's, you know, that's one of the things that McCarthy's using against them. If Trump agrees to the terms of this debate, which need to happen on stage at Trump's Florence rally on the 15th of January, then McCarthy says he will donate $1 million to a charity of Trump's choice. So uh, before we go any further, let's listen to the challenge. Hey, Donald Trump, this is Daniel McCarthy in Arizona. The world is waking up to your massive grift. Please stop with the smoke and mirrors with these audits. Stop with your fundraising. Stop uh, uh, establishment candidate endorsements. Stop pushing this gene therapy, the sauce. I hear you're coming to Florence, Arizona for another one of your do-nothing rah-rah session rallies. Well, I have an offer for you. I will give $1 million to the charity of your choice if you take 30 minutes of your stage time on January 15th and debate me or answer my questions even in front of your crowd. Think about all the things that you've done that you've you've not been held accountable for. You ushered in medical tyranny. You exploded our national debt. You relinquished our sovereignty with the USMCA trade deal. You passed more gun laws than Obama did with fixed NICs. You warned about election fraud, but yet you did nothing to prevent it even after my team months in advance warned you after we were stolen from in the Senate primary. You gave up on therapeutics 
and you push an experimental gene therapy. People are literally dying because of their trust in you. You enacted the lockdowns and you surrounded yourself with swamp creatures for four years. The January 6th protesters that came down to the Capitol, you set them up. Those people are being treated worse than dogs now. And these are your most loyal supporters. Trump, you failed America. You're the most deceptive president in American history. And trust me, there's been a lot of psyops before. I've posted the terms and conditions of my $1 million offer to my website, www.demanddaniel.com. I look forward to seeing you on January 15th, although I know you won't do it because you're a little bitch. <laughs> <laughs>
a nonprofit that claims to be combating global sex trafficking, founder ex-Navy SEAL Craig Sawman Sawyer, claims to refute any QAnon connection. However, his posts on Gab and the downloadable pamphlets in the Veterans for Child Rescue site, they match up pretty well with QAnon ideas, such as a global cabal controlling politicians, George Soros is deeply involved, as is Bill Gates, there's a worldwide network of sex traffickers, etc., etc. This isn't the same lunatic in, in Texas with the eye patch. Absolutely not. No, you're talking about Crenshaw. No, no, no. Ah, this guy, this, this, yeah, this is not an, a, uh, an elected official. This is a, a former Navy SEAL. Uh, Craig Sawyer, ex-Navy SEAL, was profiled in a Daily Beast article a while back called uh, What Happens When Ex-Navy SEALs Go Full QAnon. Now, Sawyer has denied any connection with QAnon, and he's actually criticized tenets of it. That being said, in the, his Gab feed, you don't have to look very far to find just a flurry of QAnon ideas. It's just one thing after another. He might deny having any connection with QAnon or you know, seeing himself as somebody who is influenced by, by QAnon-type statements, yet he seems to profess exactly the same things. He is a hardcore conspiracy theorist. I'm not really sure which part of the QAnon sort of collection of beliefs he refutes because he's not specific about that at all. You can see that the things that he does agree with are basically core QAnon tenets. The Daily Beast article where he's profiled came out in September 1st, 2020, and it's from Kelly Weil. And we've talked about her before. She, she writes good stuff. The next charity that McCarthy uh, has vetted <laughs> is Save the Storks in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is an anti-abortion, anti-choice nonprofit. They scored 63 out of 100 on Charity Navigator, mainly for spending less than 70% of its revenue on its own programs. Charity Navigator has a different a number of different criteria that they use to to score a charity, one of which is that their administrative costs are not in a uh, in a sufficient proportion to the expenditures on their on the charity's own programs. That's why uh, Save the Storks scored so low. It's barely a passing grade as far as Charity Navigator is concerned. Actually, I think by their estimate it's a failing grade. And it's because they spent so much money on overhead. So it's basically, this is a measurement of how efficient the nonprofit is. This name, Save the Stories, I initially thought, as soon as I heard it, was, this has got, got to be some kind of an environmental, that doesn't seem I seriously brand. thought it was too. I, I, I looked at that and I thought, okay, it's not totally insane because this has something to do with some kind of wildlife preserve or something like that. No, absolutely not. I don't know why I was so stupid. <laughs> of course, it wouldn't have anything to do with anything a reasonable person would support. It is all about storks as in storks bring babies. I think they're drawing some line with this organization that if you kill a baby, you kill a stork. <laughs> That's why you don't get the baby because the stork was murdered. <laughs> Uh, the next charity on the list is Gun Owners of America. And this one I, I, I know something about because this came up when I was researching another topic a little while back. And I discovered the Gun Owners of America, the GOA, and found that they're, this, this is basically where you go. This is your Second Amendment advocacy group if you think the NRA is too soft. If you're not happy with the NRA's support for gun rights then and how they've protected the Second Amendment in the United States, 
than you go to the gun owners of America. My prediction for, you know, say the next 10 years or so, especially considering the legal trouble and financial trouble that the NRA is dealing with right now, mainly caused by Wayne LaPierre and his lavish lifestyle that he's paid for with NRA donations, is that the gun owners of America is going to continue slicing off a share of the gun lobby in the United States. They're going to become much more of a vo- of a vocal player in Washington when it comes to gun rights, which is not a good thing. This That is a very bad thing. Oh, yeah. Because the NRA, the thing that they have going on, going for themselves right now is that they're essentially an institution. They've been around for so long. They are a Washington insider as an organization. Their rankings for Republican candidates really matter. So when, when they score somebody based on how, how much they protect gun rights, it makes a difference. It really does mean something when it comes to Republican voters. I think that that is going to slip away, the value of that of their sort of accreditation for Republican candidates. And Gun Owners of America is trying to position themselves to fill that spot. One thing that I think is an odd, an odd thing about NRA that perhaps not a lot of people know, they really kicked off a lot of their politics in gun control. And their gun control was with Ronald Reagan in California when the NRA and then governor of California, Ronald Reagan, did not think the Black Panthers should be able to have guns. The gun control that we see today largely spawned from this singular event in California when black activists, specifically the Black Panthers, said, let's have some guns. The NRA and Ronald Reagan said, well, when we said gun rights, we didn't mean you people. Yeah, specifically emphasis on the you people. (laughs) We didn't mean those kind of people. No, I I think that really freaked people out. And when the um, when the 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 black activist groups in the in the 60s started turning more and more militant and arming themselves, seeing black men marching and black women marching with rifles, I think, terrified a lot of white conservatives that spawned a lot of the gun rights, uh, a lot of the gun control laws in the United States. Essentially, it wasn't for public safety reasons back then, because culturally, you probably were only using your rifle to go hunting from time to time. There wasn't this sort of fetishistic rifle culture in the United States. And on top of it, it was it was it was somewhat commonplace for a lot of folks to give their children rifles or at least BB gun type. Absolutely. The, 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 the child, like that was one of the features of the NRA. That's really where they lived in society. That's the role that they played was gun safety. And they had, they had classes in, uh, you know, to, to teach kids how to handle a rifle, not shoot your foot and reload it safely and clean it safely. And that was basically when guns were not a problem in the U.S. And, and largely, that's the kind of culture that you see in some other countries as well, uh, like Australia, for example, or Canada. Canada has a slew of firearms. That's a very well-armed country, but it's armed in the way that, the, at least to my knowledge, that the U.S. was armed in the 60s and 70s. These are, that's a hunting rifle society, as opposed to AR-15s and AK-47s. You know, like it's not that kind of 
it's not fetishized in the same sort of way. I think that the the gun fetish crowd is growing in Canada. And it will probably come to match what we have in the U.S. It's definitely more popular to have those to, – to do that kind of thing now. But they still have laws that prevent ownership of a lot of military-style weapons. On that note, on a future episode, I think maybe we should dive a little bit into guns and how we view guns and the monopoly of violence as, as a societal concept. You know, I uh, – this – Every episode, we, you know, the audience learns something a little bit more about me. I have spent my more than a single person's share of time at gun shows. I have been <laughs> to many, many gun shows. Um, you know, the sort of the things that, you know, the the billboards that you see, like Gun and Knife Expo at some conven- convention center or something like that. I've been to a lot of those. I never have had have held the the politics of the the other people that I saw at the gun shows, but I would ba- I basically come from redneck stock. I think you know like I I grew up around guns. I was totally comfortable in that kind of environment. Uh, you know I've been shooting guns for a long time. It doesn't really. It's not the kind of thing that I is foreign to me in any way whatsoever. But I've never really like hooked into this sort of like like military cosplay that you see that you see so commonly now and back when i was going to gun shows you didn't see that then either so we're talking like uh mid 90s late 90s there wasn't that kind of military cosplay going on you you had people that would show up and you know there weren't people that were wearing like military style garb it would be like jeans and a flannel with a belt buckle that's what most people were wearing I think it may have something to do with this sort of militia-esque idea from a certain number of crowds from the libertarian camps that have fed their way into the more mainstream right-wing camps. But but I think that that aesthetic really is definitely coming from that backwoods Montana (laughs) questionable. So I I think that this there there this this ties you know there's a lag with. uh, Things that come up in our society and how long it takes for something to catch on, if it ever catches on at all. And in this particular case, there was a transition that took place in the gun culture uh, shortly after that period in the mid to late 90s. And I don't know what the specific incidents were, but there was a popularization of the Navy SEALs and Delta Force in the, uh, in the Army. There was there was a popularization of these special forces units. They started showing up in. I mean, there were movies. It started showing up in films, and I don't I don't blame Hollywood for this. I don't think that there was any kind of a motive for it or anything like that. But it was just sort of part of the zeitgeist. I do know that you know from from sources. I don't know this as a fact, but I have been I have been told this by people who I consider to be reputable that. And this this is a topic that's actually covered by a podcast that unfortunately seems to kind of gone quiet recently. Uh, it's called Pillow Scream Podcast. It is a, a couple of active duty military. They don't reveal what branch they're in. They're, they, they have gone through lengths to conceal themselves. And hopefully they're not quiet because they've been doxxed. Hopefully they're quiet because they just have other things going on in their lives and they're just not doing the podcast right now. But they're decidedly left-leaning active-duty soldiers who 
who make comments like, uh, you know, I was listening to these guys complaining about one thing or another, and and I was thinking to myself, well, the problem that they have is that they don't have class consciousness. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that they say in their podcast. I absolutely love them for that. I'm I'm not an exceptionally leftist leaning sort of person, and not because I I disagree with it, but because I pretty much eschew any sort of ideology at this point in my life. I don't really buy into any belief system when it comes to a, a political organization. I just don't do it. I I think that they're they're all so faulty that I can't I can't really find my I find myself buying into any of them. But I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of sympathy for that line of thinking, and I do think that 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 particular aspect is missing from most people's conception of where they are and and this sort of Western civilization caste system that we've created. They do not have class consciousness, and in, and actually I think that they don't have caste consciousness. They don't see that they don't see that we actually do have a caste system, and you're born into it and you stay in it for the most part. It's not as rigid as the one that India has had historically, I, I think it, it is more rigid than just a, ca- a class system. And we can point to such obvious, well-researched examples, such as the neighborhood in which you grow up in the United States has exactly. an education system that is funded by property taxes. Therefore, if you're exactly. poor, you're going to be fucking stuck poor. I mean, really obvious, easy examples. If you If you live in a poor part of a city... You're going to go to an underfunded school. You're going to probably have a substandard education because the school has lack of funding. And then now, if if you have a strong enough family unit and a strong enough support system that you actually finish school, then there you are with whatever education you manage to eke out of this poor school. Not to mention all the neuroscience behind uh, uh, proper nutrition for cognitive development. And we could go on, but... Oh, and food deserts and everything that's associated with all this stuff. There is everything but a caste system. So anyway, back to Pelo Scream, the podcast. <laughs> they, they talk about the relationship between the military, between the Department of Defense and the film industry. And so basically, you can get, if you're going to make a military movie and you want to save a bunch of money in production costs... You can get free military equipment if you let the DOD vet your script. Oh, I think I have heard of this. Long, long ago. Here you are, an aspiring filmmaker or a small studio or trying to get your project funded, and you find out you can save a bunch of money if you paint this military unit in a good light and you're not critical of things that you could easily research in the history of every military unit. Abuses of power, violence... Uh, murders, basically extrajudicial killings, breaking the military code of conduct. All of this stuff is researchable. But as long as you don't portray that on your film and you do nothing but show them in a shining light, then the then the DOD is going to give you basically hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in loaned military equipment. You make them what I would call a, a, a Superman character. And by that, I mean this sort of over-the-top character that has no character flaws that make them interesting. Right. Where, where it's just all good all the time, and, and there you go, and then they just have an Achilles heel, maybe. Instead you're, of your movie having nuance, because you need this funding, you know, you can't tell this Pat Tillman-type story where somebody decides to turn in members of their own unit for 
what they consider to be uh, breaches of the of the rules of engagement, you know, and then is later killed with friendly by friendly fire. You can't tell that story, at least not in such explicit details with your position that you think that he was that Pat Tillman was murdered. Instead, you have to kind of massage it a little bit, leave questions open, or basically do whatever the, your DOD people tell you that you have to do to, so that you can get the gear that you need so that you can make the film and decrease your production costs. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's basically, I mean, yeah, we, we, we kind of got away from the, the gun owners of America, but this fetishizing of, of gun culture and the special forces in the, in the U.S., that deserves a closer scrutiny. And like I said, you can still listen to the back episodes of Pillow Scream. It's still available on their feed. They just haven't put out anything new in a while. I like them because they're on the inside and talking about stuff. I, that's, I really appreciate that. They're active duty enlisted personnel right now talking about these things. That, that, that gives them a, 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 a perspective that a lot of people don't have when they're simply researching it as a third party. The uh, the next uh, charity, and I, I want to put that in quotation marks or in italics, <laughs> that uh, that Daniel McCarthy has approved for his Trump challenge, is the Jake and Jelly Chansley Legal Defense Fund. So he put he put Jake <laughs> Chansley's both of Jake Chansley's names. He go his real name is Jake Chansley. He goes by Jake and Jelly, uh, not Angeli and Jelly as an angel. For anybody who doesn't know those names, you might know him as the QAnon Shaman. That's somebody that his legal defense fund has been vetted as an approved charity by Daniel McCarthy. To his credit, that was a really neat hat. I would love to have that hat. Right? Yeah, seriously. So, Jake Angeli, I'll use that name because that's the name that he's chosen to use, is currently serving a sentence. I think he got 44 months in prison. For his participation in the January 6th Capitol riot. This is a January 6th episode, so that is not the last time you're going to hear us talk about it. I think that Chansley or Angeli, I just said I would use that chosen name and I use the original Fucking name. Fucking anyway. pick a name, I just, Sean. I just, I just dead named the QAnon shaman. <laughs> <laughs> I think that his sentence was, was way too extreme. I really do. And we've talked about this there. before, and I totally agree with yeah. you on that. Yeah, like that guy got railroaded because he was wearing a funny hat. I mean, he really did. That was the whole deal. He was wearing a funny hat. Because of that, photographers made him the focal point of all of this. He wasn't a leader of anything. He was, to use my favorite word, a spectacle. Absolutely. He was a rabble rouser who used to harass mall goers in Arizona. <laughs> That's what he was known for. He would show up at the mall and yell at people and 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 live stream it. That's was he, what he not was one of those? For. Was he not? And forgive me if I'm remembering this incorrectly, but didn't he live in his mom's basement or something? Something like that. Like, I think he lived in his mother's house. Now she is also a QAnon supporter, and she wrote and performed an absolutely ridiculous song. So I'm not going to look for it or I don't know, maybe I'll include it in this episode. I have no idea. But for anybody listening, if I don't happen to add it to this recording, go find uh, her. She goes by Chansley. Go find Jake, Jake Angeli's mother's song that she 
per, that she sang and then overlaid video of the January 6th march to the Capitol. Uh, yeah, it is really something to hear. <laughs> wow. The, you know, there is actually, there is a whole kind of subgenre of QAnon music that You're kidding. is fascinating. No, no, there really is. There are a lot of musicians in the in the in QAnon circles. Uh, QAA, the, the the QAnon Anonymous podcast, has covered QAnon music in past episodes. Really, go go listen to it. Find those episodes of QAA. I apologize if I'm sending you to one of their premium episodes. It may or may not be a premium episode. I don't know. Subscribe to them on Patreon. It's worth it. You'll enjoy it. They, they've done a lot of coverage of QAnon in general, obviously. It's in their name. They have spent time focusing on QAnon musicians. And one of their hosts, Jake Rockatansi, is, uh, is a musician himself. And I want to say that, that uh, another host, Julian Field, if he's not a musician, he's a, at least a music aficionado and has a great appreciation for music. They, they do a, a sometimes hilarious, but also... Um, thorough review of the QAnon music. So yeah, do, the, listen this makes to it me, there. This makes I'm not going to try to replicate any of that. The, the thing that really comes to mind as you're saying this is the kind of crossover cringe of Leonard Nimoy singing the ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Right, which, seriously. If you oh, And to all of our listeners, if you haven't, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you must Google... And watch it on the YouTube. There's a YouTube video of it. That's it, it, the YouTube video is no, no, no. chef's kiss. You really kiss. have to. Li- I I personally recommend listening to all of Leonard Nimoy's music. <laughs> he he did a cover of Willie Nelson's Poncho and Lefty. <laughs> he did um um what's the one? Uh, I I forget the full name, but uh, don't take your love to town. Oh my god! Was it Ruby? Ruby, don't take your love to town. I I have no yeah. idea. Leonard Nimoy. He got around with the music. <laughs> he he does a great the voice range too. Of some of the people he covers, but it's it's worth it at least for the novelty. A hell of a lot better than anything William Shatner ever did. Oh my god, that was horrific! <laughs> <laughs> like when he did Rocket Man. Oh god! All right, so <laughs> well, coming back on. to planet Earth, the final nonprofit again. Nonprofit needs to be in in italics here is It All Belongs to Christ, the Legacy Fund, which, according to McCarthy, is a fund directed toward people with vaccine injuries. So, yes, a small fraction of the people who receive the vaccine, any of them, depending on the vaccine, there's there are different outcomes. Anybody who receives any of the FDA-approved vaccines in the United States, or AstraZeneca, or Sputnik, or whatever vaccine you happen to come across, there is a small number or there are a small number of people who do have side effects, sometimes fatal side effects. A very small number have fatal side effects. That's a real thing. I don't know if he's referring to them or if he thinks basically everybody's going to be coming down with autism or something. At any rate, I looked into this supposed nonprofit or charity. It all belongs to Christ, the Legacy Fund. I couldn't find anything. Either he got the name wrong or I didn't look hard enough, but either way, I can't find anything about it. Of all of these nonprofits, the one that is maybe the most unsettling or just is the most unsettling is the Veterans for Child Rescue, the ex-Navy SEAL Craig Sawman Sawyer's nonprofit. This one has a lot of cringe to it. 
they have an educational resources section on their website with downloadable posters and pamphlets. They really sidle up to the the QAnon Save the Children movement. You know, they co-opted that hashtag QAnon supporters did a, co- a couple of years ago. Basically took real concerns about child endangerment and sex trafficking and, and just sort of rolled that into their ridiculous beliefs that the global cabal is is running these adrenochrome farms and harvesting adrenochrome from a bunch of enslaved children. This nonprofit, the Veterans for Child Rescue, sounds creepily exactly like that, just like the Save the Children crowd. They have one pamphlet in their educational resources that specifically covers, quote, satanic ritual abuse. That's their language. This 11-page document focuses heavily on a group called the Finders. The, the Finders was a spiritual group led by Marion Petty. They're believed by some to have been a cult-like group that kidnapped children, conducted satanic rituals, practiced mind control on them, and then ultimately trafficked them to wealthy elites worldwide to be used as sex slaves. According to this document in the Veterans for Child Rescue Educational Resources, there are declassified FBI files that were released in 2019 that reveal that the McMartin case, um, the McMartins who were running a preschool were falsely accused of including the children of the, pre- of the, the daycare, not a preschool. I don't know if it was a preschool. The, the daycare and satanic rituals. They were exonerated. This basically was not the thing that kicked off, but the thing that really added a lot of momentum to satanic panic in the 1980s. It also heavily involved the book Michelle Remembers, which was the supposed recollections of a of a woman's childhood in which she had been involved by her parents in satanic ritual abuse. This was all debunked. And it also, the debunking of this changed the standards in how children are allowed to deliver testimony in court cases. It was found that therapists that were involved in these, um, in these court cases were heavily leading the children to particular conclusions based on the types of questions and the way they were being questioned. So back to the satanic ritual abuse pamphlet from the Veterans for Child Rescue. These reports expose the criminality, the FBI declassified documents, expose the criminality of satanic cults, ritual child sex abuse, human sacrifice, human trafficking, child pornography, and mind control psyops experimented on children. But as horrific as these crimes are, the most damning ones are those being committed through our own justice system by our central intelligence agencies, the FBI, other intelligence companies, and their connections with power, with people of power in government, the Justice Department, the immigration system, the military-industrial complex, that's in all caps, the education system, in medical science, the elite class, that is not identified as being anybody in particular, terrorist organizations, socialist and communist agendas, foreign and domestic. There is an active criminal enterprise embedded within our governmental apparatus that is far-reaching and ongoing in America today and around the world. I will include a link to that particular document in the show notes. It is so completely melted that you cannot even make any sense of this. 
First off, that is the most exceptional run-on sentence I've seen in a long time. And he's read my writings. Yeah, right? They do this really, like, shady thing right here in that that sentence. All of that was a quote from within the first couple of paragraphs from the Satanic Ritual Abuse pamphlet. They start off by calling it, or start off by referencing a supposed declassified FBI file released last year, 2019 in parentheses, reveals the McMartin case and the Finders case that have been kept secret from public view since the 1970s and 1980s. Okay, so you can pick apart this sentence right there. And I'm not going to focus on the grammar. I'm going to focus on the fact that, which the grammar, which is terrible. But the claim, there is a claim that's being insinuated here, but never overtly made. The insinuation is that there is a declassified FBI file released last year, 2019, reveals the McMartin case. Not reveals that something was in the McMartin case or the Finders case. It just reveals the McMartin case. Okay, declassified documents did not reveal the McMartin case. That is public record. People have been writing books about the McMartin trial for decades now. It didn't reveal that the case existed. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to tie this, this document to the next things that they're saying, to lend the next things that they're about to say some credibility. That's exactly what they're this doing. Inference. That, that is exactly what they're doing, is that they're, they're stealing credibility from the fact that, or from, at least from, the, from their claim that an FBI file was declassified in 2019 that said something about the McMartin case and the Finders case, and then connecting that seamlessly to something to do with the CIA and the FBI itself. All right, does anybody really, in any, in any serious way, believe that a declassified FBI file reveals wrongdoing about the FBI? Do we think that the FBI is going to declassify a file that reveals that there's satanic ritual abuse going on inside the FBI or the CIA or the Justice Department? Absolutely not. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. What they're doing with this, you know, with this sentence that begins with but, as horrific as these crimes are, the most damning ones are those of which there's no documents that are specifically being referenced to support any of these other claims. They're just hanging you out there and they're allowing you to sort of like, yeah, I knew it all along. They're using the same spooky language that is classically used to trick the listener into a sort of automatic engagement. As soon as you hear that spooky language, such as declassified, all of a sudden right. you're sitting there right with the smoking man in the X-Files and you're engaged in a sort of way that is a lot less critical because you have this, this spooky language that has triggered that area of your attention. Yeah. Not really great for picking up on these more critical cues that you should be picking up on if you're attempting to analyze this in any meaningful way. Yeah, that's that's cues as in C-U-E-S, not cues as in a Ron Watkins follower. (laughs) This type of conspiracy theorizing is the, it really is like, you know, you mentioned the smoking man. This is the X-Files brand of conspiracy theorizing. The intelligence asset, CIA undercover spy fantasy of conspiracy theorizing. There are other varieties of the, of conspiracy theorizing. 
There's the new agey sort of starseed version of conspiracy theorizing. There's the kind of Tom Clancy special operations version of conspiracy theorizing. Some of these blend together sometimes. You have combinations of them, and there's more. There is a kind of the the Wicca kind of secret, hidden, esoteric knowledge kind of a conspiracy. And theorizing. those ones blend really well with the Skull and Bones and all these other ones, and the Knights Templar and all that shit. They honestly all do blend together, and they can be blended. They don't necessarily have to, but all these people can kind of find common ground with one another if you let them sit with each other long enough. In our next segment, I would like to take a moment to remember Kevin Greeson. Kevin Greeson was a 55-year-old man from Athens, Alabama, a staunch supporter of Donald J. Trump, who on January 6, 2021, attended the Stop the Steal rally. Trump riled him up, told him that he needed to fight like hell and save our democracy said he was going to march with him to the Capitol building and tell and tell those elected officials to do their jobs. And Kevin Greeson went. While outside the Capitol building, he, according to some at least, tased himself in the balls and soon after died of a heart attack. May he rest in power. <laughs> by, by according to some, this is a disputed fact, the tasing of the balls. There's some widely shared Twitter posts and Facebook posts that got a lot of attention at the time, as in thousands and thousands and thousands of retweets about his ball tasing. I don't know that that was ever verified by anybody. At some point, USA Today looked into the facts around that and actually conducted some interviews. Uh, According to people close to Kevin Greeson, including his wife, He suffered from high blood pressure, and that was likely the cause of his fatal heart attack, not the ball tasing. But we might not ever know the true story. Meanwhile, this sweet man is among the stars now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We actually have a picture of Kevin Greeson at his absolute finest. Are you you looking at this now? Oh, I am. (laughs) All right. So what we're seeing here, do you you want to describe this? (laughs) Yeah, I, I would love to. He has two AR-15s. Set the set the stage here. <laughs> uh, we have what appears to be a middle-class house with the cheesiest decorations that you can imagine. Uh, it is a terrible Christmas tree. It looks like it was bought in its entirety as a floor model in Hobby Lobby. I, I, I like. I, it looks like a clean house. I I don't I mean it's, it looks like it's a well kept house. It's not like it's nice ish furniture. It's a very middle class kind of you know furnished home. But There's it is the, it is the most Midwest middle class wasp depiction. Well, he's from possibly. Alabama, so this is a southern home. He's not Midwest. All right, cookie cutter, Co- cookie cutter <laughs> America, <laughs> sugar cookie cutter. Um, <laughs> I, I think he's wearing a Harley Davidson t-shirt. It's very snug. He's He has quite a belly. He's standing there, sort of, you know, like, legs spread wide, AR-15 in each hand. Are those both AR-15s? I feel like one of them is... Yeah, like... they both are. Okay. So, you know, the, th- the, the thing with AR-15s is that it is basically a gun nuts hobby kit. Uh, that, that's one <laughs> of the things that... 
that a gun nut loves about AR-15s is that you can rearrange it all. You can change everything out. About the only thing that stays the same is the lower receiver with the tri- with the trigger assembly. Well, I, I I think I think that their famous phrase is AR-15, the Legos of guns. Yeah, <laughs> nobody said that, but gun nuts think like that all the time. <laughs> It, an AR-15 is basically a Barbie playhouse for gun nuts. <laughs> you know, you can change the doors out and put different curtains on it and a new bed in there and do different bathrooms and whatnot. But you can do dress up with your AR-15. That's what that's what people really like about it. So there are endless customization kits and components that you can put on and put and snap into place and you can do adjustments to trigger. You can switch out the trigger. And actually, the you know, as far as federal firearms licenses go, the only thing that is controlled is that lower receiver. No shit. That that is that is the gun, as far as your your FFL is concerned. When you buy a gun from a firearm from a firearms dealer, or if you do it, I mean, if you do it in a if if you take advantage of the, the gun show loophole, which is basically making it a private transaction. And nobody needs to broker it or write a receipt or anything like that. Or if you buy it from another person, none of this matters. But if you buy it from a dealer, a licensed dealer, the waiting period to buy it, to buy a firearm has to do with the lower receiver because that's where the gun is. You could buy a, a lower receiver yeah. on its own and sort of and then put the pieces together and build your own rifle, but you still have to do the waiting period to just to buy the lower receiver. And it's my understanding that that's even some of the difficulty in 3D printing cracking into. Keep in mind, that like the reason why 3D printing is a problem with a lower receiver, and I don't know if people have solved this problem yet or not. I haven't kept up on it, but the reason why it has been a problem, it is the only component that actually has to be made out of metal or something durable enough that it's going to be able to withstand the explosion of the round, because that's what propels the bullet out of the out of the shell. The firing pin is going to hit the the primer at the back end of the shell, and it, there's an explosion that takes place, and that explosion propels the empty shell through the mechanism. You know, there's different mechanisms, but in different types of, of guns, but it shoots the shell out of the rifle, and it also propels the propels the bullet out of the barrel. You need to have something durable enough that is going to be able to not break when that shell explode when that round explodes. So that's why typically, like, that's the part you can't 3D print is the receiver, you know, like the lower receiver. The upper receiver, that's not necessarily the same story, depending on how the gun's built. Um, there are there are firearms that have upper receivers that are made out of composites and not out of metal. And people buy, you know, they'll buy a, a cheap AR-15 for 500 bucks or sometimes less. And then they'll put, a, you know, a couple of thousand dollars worth of customizations on there. And do all kinds of things and imagine that there's some kind of a spec warrior or something like that. That's basically what we're seeing here. We're seeing two fairly customized AR-15s, one in each hand. It's impossible to fire that weapon in that position. You need two hands on it. It'll go all over the place. You're most likely going to shoot yourself or somebody standing next to you if you try to fire it with one hand. He's definitely holding it in a way that he's demonstrating to Grandma that he really liked the gift and he was definitely surprised. I love to imagine who's taking the photos, who's taking the picture in photos like this. I, I want to imagine like his 85 year old mother taking the picture. She's wearing like a floral house coat. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I've taken photos that look very similar to this facial expression for for family when I have a gift <laughs> that was sent to me that needs to be sent away in a photograph form so that they know that I really like it. I think the thing it. that shouldn't be missed here is that he, in addition to the, the AR-15 in each hand, he also has two pistols shoved into his waistband, sort of wedged into place by his <laughs> exceptionally large stomach. And And this is not a large man. He looks like he's... He's not terribly tall. It sort of looks like a Hobbit household, to be honest, because he seems like he's small. Now, maybe he just has a very large head, <laughs> just based on the proportions of things. I don't think he's very big. He seems pretty small. I mean, he kind of looks like... Have you have you ever seen ju- the, the show Justified? <laughs> no, I have not. So, Constable Bob Sweeney, I think he shows up in the, in the later seasons, like three or four is Patton Oswalt, and he's just kind of like this overcompensating short guy. We actually have a picture of him, and it is exactly the same energy. Like, it's like... <laughs> 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 so we see Patton Oswalt, like, mid-firing an AK-47 as Constable Bob Sweeney. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the same energy. <laughs> All, all messing with uh, with Kevin Grease and his side. I, I, you know, I've mentioned this already in this episode. He honestly looks like he could have been one of my relatives. I really do come from a redneck background, and I've known, I've been at at family dinners with guys that look like this dude. In addition to that, I lived for a while in Tennessee, and. I saw guys that were just like that. I knew them. They were, I mean, they were, I was on friendly terms with them. I knew well enough to not get too wrapped up in political type stuff with any of these people. And so I never really knew where they stood on things, to be honest. It was just never talked about. Lots of Trump supporters in my family. This guy, I could have easily found myself across from a family dinner from somebody just like him. I, I really hope he did not tase himself in the balls. <laughs> as, as one person who claims to have been on scene said he did repeatedly before dying of a heart attack. Accidentally, that is. There's a ProPublica piece from January 15, 2021. You know, obviously just a few days after after Kevin Greeson died at the Capitol called The Radicalization of Kevin Greeson. They really do a good job, I think, in this piece. It is uh, Connor Sheets is the author. And it was originally in from AL.com. I think they do a great job in this piece of humanizing the man and talking about the route in time and not just on the road that he took to get from 2009 in Alabama when, when he had traveled to attend the inauguration of President Barack Obama, at the time a person he considered a political hero, to 12 years later or so where he is basically right next to where Obama was inaugurated, dying of a heart attack while attending the riot at the Capitol building. That is a story worth telling. From this piece, this is from one of Greason's parlor posts, where he's talking about, let's take this fucking country back. Load your guns and take to the streets, he wrote on December 17. This seems like he had really gotten, he's really gotten radicalized not to just restate the title of this piece. According to Mark McDaniel, the Huntsville attorney representing the Greeson family, he got interested in Trump because he felt he was more business-minded, and as the economy kept getting better, he kept getting more interested in Trump. 
that doesn't seem like a terribly unreasonable thing. I think this is a good example of how big things can happen in small steps, in basically innocuous ways. This is from the ProPublica piece. For most of his adult life, Greasing got the majority of his news from mainstream sources like CNN and AL.com. AL.com is an Alabama news website, according to his wife, Christy, who answered questions through the family attorney, McDaniel. But over the past few years, Greasing gravitated toward Fox News and other conservative outlets as he became enamored with Trump and the good he believed the president was doing for the economy and for American industry. I, I think this is a pretty typical blue-collar kind of worker story, where they, they, they see their own situation getting better. Yeah. And there, there's this, um, this, this lag effect that, that fucks people up over and over again, where people see improvements after a, a transition of presidents, and they attribute it to the current president rather than the former one, who laid all the groundwork for those improvements to happen. I think about people like this guy. And I also think about one of my, uh, somebody who is a really close friend for a really long time. I don't even talk to him anymore. But growing up, we were both two peas in a pod since we met in high school. He moved away. I moved away. Ten years later, we meet up in the same city. And it turns out we're completely different people completely different people. He had felt alienated here in Seattle for a period of time, isolated especially. And during this period, I think part of what happened is that he latched on to his father's generic conservatism because I think that for, for him, perhaps that was, I'm speculating wildly here, something more safe or familiar or, or something that he could return to in some way, shape or form in his feelings of isolation out here in uh -huh. while he was doing his doctorate. Uh, and we, you know, we both went to high school together. We were, we were both two peas in a pod. But the reason that we both got along is that we hated the man and we were into lefty ideas and we wanted to do art and, and all sorts of things like that. <laughs> because we were inside, into all the same punk rock and, and metal and, and everything else that was against establishment and everything else and then many years later i discover that he is not the person that he was so many years ago when we last left off that is to me such a stark example of somebody who i knew so intimately and who the primary reason why we initially came together was our similarities in not necessarily as a specific ideology but similarities in worldview mm -hmm. and other things he goes on to vote for trump and be conservative and we pretty much don't even talk anymore not even necessarily because of that but just right. that transformation and that really strikes me as a profound personal example but really one of a thousand examples where people shift and i think part of what we want to do in this podcast is understand how the fuck yeah. does that shift happen what are the influences contributing to individuals and whole swaths of people that are shifting them in one way or another? If we're not all jellyfish and there's some degree of volition in what we're doing as individuals, I want to know what that is. But in the same sense, if there are some pretty heavy influences that we don't see, I really yeah. want to know what those are. I've had some amazing experiences where I go out in the middle of the desert in the outskirts of Albuquerque with rednecks in Jeeps, and we're drunk as skunks and a number of other drugs, and, and doing wild and crazy things. And in those moments, we are the best of friends. 
I would imagine that should I have a conversation with those very same people right now, I would have some yeah. disagreements. Yeah. And I, I want to know where, where, do, where do those lines happen? And this, this guy really gives me an example of some of these personal anecdotes mm-hmm. that I'm giving right now that I can easily imagine how a person's politics can shift in all these different directions where, as individuals, they might be the, the best guy to party with or, right. or your best friend. This is also from the article. In the days after Trump lost his re-election bid in November, Greeson posted on Parler, that's a red flag, he's posting on Parler, <laughs> that he, like many diehard Trump fans, no longer trusted Fox News and that the cable channel had jumped ship, quote-unquote. Instead, he declared that he would only consume news produced by the pro-Trump far-right outlet Newsmax, and that he would use Parler instead of Facebook. I mean, that's six of one, half a dozen of the other. The stories of, pe- of people getting radicalized on Facebook, it's not, it's not any better yeah. than Parler. More than a few. I'm done with Facebook and Fox News, he wrote in a November Parler post called a Parlay. It's true. I, 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 I only read that because it's part of the article. I refuse to use that as a verb or a noun or, or anything. Unless unless I'm doing pirate code. I was going to say, do they not realize that's French origin? We can't get anything true from the news media. Yeah, except they spell it with a Y. <laughs> do they now? Am I totally no, out no, of bounds? It's the same word, but they spell it with a Y because they don't want to do it the French way with an accent. That's way too effeminate. <laughs> we can't get anything true for the news media he wrote in another november parlay newsmax is the only channel i'm trusting at this point greason's wife who declined to respond to questions about her own politics or how her husband's political transformation impacted their family told mcdaniel she saw the shift in her husband's media habits again mcdaniel is the lawyer family friend greason became convinced that trump had won the november election a false narrative ceaselessly pushed by both the president and many far-right outlets. Brown said it didn't surprise him to learn that Greeson's views intensified as he consumed increasingly fringe media. The new media landscape of America encourages extreme political behavior, Brown said. Do I think there's a component or subset of the electorate in North Alabama that's gone down that intellectual rat hole? I certainly do, but I think they've gone down that same rat hole in Colorado and in Montana and other places. In the weeks after the election, Greeson posted a series of violent messages on Parler calling for people to take up arms against a political system he considered corrupt. He shared support for the white supremacist Proud Boys movement, called for Obama to, quote, be put to death, a man whose inauguration he attended, and expressed his apparent hope that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi would die of COVID-19. Well, at least he's acknowledging that COVID-19 is real and it kills people. (laughs) (laughs) only the right people only the right ones clearly (laughs) i lost faith in obama too and i saw him as just like another another establishment shill but i mean it is a big extreme to go from attending the inauguration to calling for him to be put to death (laughs) that's a huge swing I, i was in the i was more in the middle the entire time i was adamantly in support of Obama. I even I even canvassed for him, but I did not attend the inauguration or show up to meet him when he spoke locally in Albuquerque. And I also did not call him for call for him to be put to death. <laughs> uh yeah. Funny enough, the anarchist in the crowd here has the most moderate right, exactly. of the of the viewpoints perhaps. I I voted for him twice. That's all I got. 
And I didn't like him either time. (laughs) On November 29, Greeson called for members of Congress to support Trump's attempts to overturn the election. Quote, stand the fuck up. Our president is being took. (laughs) I'm going to read that all again, and I will not cut this. Quote, stand (laughs) the fuck up. Our president is being took out of office in coup, and you motherfuckers do nothing. It might take a few years, but Trump and the American people will take you fucks out of your office. I'll, I'll let, I'll let uh, Greeson's final words speak for themselves. Ah! Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, it might, be, it might be more like... Let's uh let's take a couple of minute break and uh, and then come back and then um, yeah why don't you introduce segment three and and run it and I'll jump in and do yeah. you know the kind of ad lib commentary shit. Ah, ça va, ça va. <laughs> All right, I uh, refilled my whiskey. I shared a cheese stick with the dog and the cat. <laughs> I'm good to go. I, 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 you know, on a similar note, since this is all going to be cut, I, uh, I went to Trader Joe's today. And despite Seattle prices on fucking everything going through the roof, I mean, more than they have been, they were through the roof. Yeah. But now it's like, you know, everything costs your firstborn and an arm and a leg. Uh, But uh, Trader Joe's somehow still outrageously reasonable for everything. It, It makes no fucking sense to me. Nevertheless, I went to Trader Joe's today and I always get carried away at their cheeses and meats. Yeah. I always get so fucking carried away. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Not going anywhere with that point. I'm just saying I carried away. I understand. I, I see things that I can poorly pronounce and I get excited. <laughs> right? There's, there's like a, a direct relationship between how hard it is to pronounce something and how much you want it.
For our main segment, civil unrest in Kazakhstan and the military crackdown. On January 5th, Kazakhstan saw the beginning of a real insurrection. Instead of a bunch of craven Trump lackeys spinning up white rage and grievance politics, what we see happening in Kazakhstan is a real uprising. On New Year's Day, the Kazakhstan state lifted price controls on its liquefied petroleum gas, a key fuel in Kazakhstan. Overnight, the prices doubled. This is used for transportation, fertilizer, among other things, that are crucial to daily life and activity in the country's real economy. Literally, their cars are running. Yeah. Right? This is not just transportation in terms of shipping. No. But it's also included in it's shipping. It's people going to work. This is people work. getting to work. Yeah. I, I think something to, to point out right here, I don't know if, uh, if we talk about it later on, but the average monthly income for a family in Kazakhstan is in the neighborhood of, a, of the equivalent of $500 or so, $550. And so this price increase, which is basically like a few cents a gallon, has a dramatic impact on people's lives. We're talking about a place where this determines the price of food as well immediately. Exactly. And, there, there and are all shipping. kinds of collected effects that spread out from a price increase on something as core as the main source of energy. When I use the term in the country's real economy, I'm not being flippant with that term. I'm talking about, in the economic sense, a real economy as opposed to fictitious capital like finance and some other things that we could examine. We're talking about this is as core of a staple as bread or or anything else that we could talk about that is directly affecting people's lives. Yeah, we're not talking about pork belly and orange juice futures. <laughs> <laughs> we are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. We are commodities brokers, William. Now, what are commodities? Commodities are agricultural products, like coffee that you had for breakfast, wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. And then there are other commodities, like frozen orange juice and gold. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> This was a big deal. This was a very unwelcome New Year's Day surprise. This sparked protests in the town Janauzen over the weekend, specifically Sunday. These protests quickly spread to other towns and cities throughout Kazakhstan. This is an oil worker town where Janauzen, the, the Janauzen massacre occurred in December of 2011 during protests and strikes where 16 demonstrators were killed by police. I read another statement that said at least 14, so there seems to be some ambiguity on that. Either way, what we have here is an oil-rich country, a, an energy-rich country, where these people in this region are striking and they're protesting for an assortment of reasons, but obviously pay is the key reason here and... And we'll include links to more information about these things that we're mentioning in our show notes. By the evening of January 3rd, Prime Minister Eskara Mamini's office released a statement that said all gas stations in Mangistau province had been ordered to lower the price of LPG, but it was too late. 
The cat was out of the bag and protests continued. I want to jump in for a second and say, like, because I've read some stuff about comments from people on Twitter saying that you can tell that this is ideological and it, it isn't based in facts because as soon as the prices were lowered, people were still rioting and burning shit up. I don't think that's the good take at all. I think that's a totally incorrect take on this situation. What we're looking at here is that people were so frustrated with a legacy of enrichment by a select group of elites and their frustration had reached this boiling point that it exploded when those price increases took place on Je- on uh, on January 1st lowering those price in- increases addresses the immediate cause of their frustration the most recent thing that happened was addressed but the legacy of this differential quality of life was totally unaddressed These people were basically all that frustration that had been built up all this time that finally boiled over with these the price increase on the 1st of January or the removal of the restriction on price increases that allowed those increases to take place. All that frustration was still there, still boiling over. This is something that has happened multiple times before. This is not the first time that they have have said one thing and then there has been resistance to it and then and then they say oh never mind we're we're going to change it this eruption didn't come from a vacuum to put this in perspective for a lot of our listeners who might not have a context for kazakhstan it's one of the largest countries by landmass although it's among the most sparsely populated it produces significant amounts of oil and natural gas as well as 43% of the world's uranium supply It was invaded by the Empire of Russia, followed by the Bolsheviks Empire, with a brief moment of national independence, something like a year, in between those two blips. Its role in energy production has led to significant income for the country after the dissolution of the USSR, an important role in the regional political economy, and discontent as the country is full of corruption, nepotism, and poverty for many working people making the wealth. These are people who are pumping out the oil, and that region that I just mentioned is one of the areas where it's a oil worker town. We're talking about people who are not really making a lot of money in global standards, in local standards, whatever way we might want to evaluate it. Meanwhile, we have certain people who have been reaping the benefits of nepotism, and corruption, and concentration of wealth and capital and power for decades, and not only decades, on into the USSR. Nasrbayev didn't come out of nowhere. He was already running that country before the dissolution of the USSR. He was the president when this was still a satellite country of the USSR. And we should put president in quotation marks here. Well, dictator. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's however... widely considered as an autocracy. His his title is president, but he's an autocrat. Or he was an autocrat. This is something that we see in a lot of countries where there's an incredible discrepancy between autocrat, dictator, president. But everybody seems to like the term president. Well, they like it because it seems like it seems like it's it's a, a, a legitimizing title to be called president. It very much is. Nobody. Most people don't want to be called dictator. I mean, some people do. 
I, I said nobody, but yeah, some people like Dictator. They're totally <laughs> fine with Generalissimo. They're cool with yeah. titles like that. They think that's an accomplishment. And we can even see discrepancies such as uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, who is, in most accounts, a dictator or an autocrat. But there's a degree of democracy that is involved there that is slightly more than we're talking about in this context. And in the case of Turkey, for example, anything that is is significantly opposed to the AKP, his party, is not going to happen. And of course, if you're if you're a part of any of the Kurdish sympathetic or Kurdish outright political parties, then go fuck yourself. <laughs> you're going to be imprisoned immediately. Remember when Erdogan showed up in Washington when Trump was president, like around 2016 or so? Oh, and, I remember very well. And his his security guys got into a fight with the protesters. They like beat up yeah. a bunch of people. Yeah. More recently, Kazakhstan has been exploited for its energy price controls as the second largest center for Bitcoin mining. So this is something that strikes a nerve as a key component of this spark to this uprising is an energy crisis. Yeah. Meanwhile, Kazakhstan's price controls on their energy have made it a attractive place for Bitcoin mining. The price controls and the power sources. So LPG, you know, like we're talking about liquid petroleum gas, is the the specific type of energy that is that has sparked this recent this uprising, but they also have a lot of coal in Kazakhstan. So the Bitcoin mining is in Kazakhstan is entirely fueled by coal and LPG. The only reason that Kazakhstan right now is actually number two is because China cracked down on Bitcoin mining recently and shut down some some very large centers. They China was previously number two. This is a very um, maybe not green way of mining Bitcoin. <laughs> it is <laughs> no I, way. I, we're basically we're burning a bunch of coal to make digital currency. That's what's happening in Kazakhstan. And this money, the the Bitcoin specifically, you know, the people who are financing these Bitcoin mining operations are already billionaires. This country was the last to declare independence during the dissolution of the USSR in December 1991. Nurzultan Nazarbayev was the country's first president from 1990 until his resignation in 2019, amidst waves of protests that sparked in 2018 and sustained into 2020. His initial election had only him on the ballot with 98% of the votes in his favor. This is... A little tidbit that I read, and I, I didn't look it up much further, but I want to know what the other 2% is. Yeah, right, I exactly. Want to, what's, what's the other 2%? I, right, I mean, are people writing in Mickey Mouse or something like that? Like, it's, <laughs> what is the other 2%? Is it, like it going to be like a soap opera star, or... <laughs> somebody runs a sham election they'll be like oh well we can't have a hundred percent because that seems shady so we'll have 98 <laughs> percent <laughs> and, and i but who do they I pick for of, the other two percent vladimir putin did the same like pulled the same shit in russia where he had like 85 percent of the votes or something yeah obviously this is nonsense this is not a real election and of course saddam hussein in in iraq this next part i think is really interesting 
that Nur Sultan named his own successor. From what I've read, I mean, tell me if you saw something different, that Tokayev became the president on March 20, 2019. He's the current president, again, all in quotation marks. Was there actually an election or did... I was not able to find any evidence of that in my reading. Yeah, I didn't read any history of an election. I just kept reading over and over that Nazarbayev appointed his own successor. And like he not hand selected that, him. All the news articles that I read about this, all of them use the very specific phrase handpicked. Yeah, they all say handpicked. I, I avoided using that phrase for, for being a cliche, but for fuck's sake, every article that I read used that exact term. That's really, that's curious. I don't know what to make of that, but that is a, that's curious phrasing to reuse over and over. Sometimes that, that can be an indication that you have a bunch of journalists that are writing pieces individually based on common sources. That's, that's what, that's what struck me about that phrasing and also my lack of finding anything that gave any detail on it. But what also strikes me about it, uh, in this case is that Throughout the period where Nur Sultan was reigning, if you will, there were several referendums. They they produced the obvious results, but there there were addendums to the constitution, referendums validating his existence, and things like that. So while they're going to the trouble of doing that, like referendums that, that say would... like, yeah, it's cool if you want to be president for thirty years. Yeah, things like that. <laughs> but. These these sorts of displays, I would expect to see in this handover of power, and I just didn't read anything about that. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it didn't exist. I just, I assumed that I would at least be able to see something. So here's my guess. If you flash back 20 years or, uh, I don't know, 16 years or so to Vladimir Putin's presidency and Dmitry Medvedev as prime minister. Do you remember that time period where Putin was president, Medvedev was prime minister, and then Medvedev was president and Putin was prime minister, and then Putin was president and Medvedev was prime minister again? They just changed roles back and forth a couple of times. Yeah. They did that a few times. It was very clear that Putin was the puppet master in this situation, and Medvedev was just this guy that was getting bounced from one job to the next, but really his power didn't change ever. Putin was always yeah. in charge, whether he was the president at the moment or the prime minister at the moment. I think that when Nazarbayev finally gave up this presidency, in scare quotes, and appointed uh, Tokayev to the presidency, and then became the head of security or something like that, not only became the head of it, he had been the head of security since one year after taking presidency. Oh, so he had both jobs at he'd the same been, time. He'd been the head right. and the other title right. the so, whole time. So I think that what Nazarbayev was probably doing was he was keeping the real power role as head of national security and then just appointing a new president, basically, or handpicking or however this worked, if there was an election or whatever it was. You know, he he won by 85% of the vote or whatever. But I think that maybe a combination of just being basically geriatric and maybe not having a good handle on, be, on being able to hold on to those reins of power 
that when he uh, gave up this role of president and put Tokayev in this role, then he lost some authority. Because what happens next is really interesting. Uh, you know, like, it is really interesting. Nur-Sultan, he stays in this position that he holds since 1991 as the chairman of the Security Council. He has all this significant power. He basically is running this country with nobody questioning him whatsoever. And then as soon as these, this unrest takes place, Tokayev kicks him out of the job somehow. And he fires, he fires his nephew. So Nazarbayev's nephew gets fired at the same time as this deputy chief of something or other. Yeah. What it tells me is that there's, there's been a whole bunch of machinations going on behind the scenes in Kazakhstan politics that never hits the nat- like international news. It never hits world news. It makes me think of shell companies. Where you have this shell company in someone's name, and the person's name who owns the shell company for tax purposes so that you can avoid taxes and all that, this person is literally just some low-ranking employee. It's just some schlub that works at a desk somewhere. (laughs) He's some schlub. And I think of, like, this schlub saying, no, actually, I own this now. Yeah. That, that's the it's, guy. That, it's right here it's in the like, paperwork. Like that, that came up. That came <laughs> up in the Panama Papers. <laughs> so a bunch of these companies were owned by this secretary. <laughs> <laughs> I I also often think, what would happen if one of those schlubs actually said, "No, I own all this." Right. If they actually tried to assert some kind of control over it. See, I think what you're describing now is essentially the plot of a yet unmade Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, clear, uh, yeah, obviously. Okay. So while we're fucking so, around, have you seen pictures of Tokayev? Oh, I have. <laughs> this guy has, there is something about him. He, he basically looks like a... Um, he is a sack of sausages packed into a suit and <laughs> then smeared with lip gloss. <laughs> he, he looks like Fred Armisen doing a Kate McKinnon impression of Dr. Fauci. <laughs> That's really the combination of features you need to be thinking of when you're looking at this man. He really is an enigma. I look at him and I really feel magnetized by these photos of him. I just cannot stop looking at him. <laughs> he seems like he's had a whole lot of plastic surgery, but at the same time, he hasn't had any. He makes me think of a wax figure of a celebrity. Well, like where like the, the climate control got like it failed for a while and it's slightly <laughs> melted. Like, <laughs> well, well, like, what, well, like it was a workshop, like, like, oh, open, open night for learning how to do wax figurines of, of celebrities. <laughs> he is a captivating man. He is, he's redefining masculinity for, uh, for 2022. <laughs> Back to seriousness a smidge, these protests They were sparked in 2018, but they sustained into 2020. People weren't satisfied with this 
transition of power. One of the things that happened in this uprising was that people were still angry at him. Yeah, exactly. They were they were they were chanting like uh go home old man to Nazarbayev. Even though Nazarbayev is not the president, they still see him as ostensibly the person in charge and they're chanting something along the lines of go home old man. Keep in mind, we're talking about January 1st was when a few small-ish protests happened in one town that sparked into a full-on uprising at this point. It's not even a full week yet. Keeping, keeping in mind how fast we're talking about. Nur Sultan maintained the position that he held since 1991 as the chairman of the Security Council of Kazakhstan. That's what we were talking about before. Right. And as we were saying, he was widely understood to have significant power over the state, if not acting as the autocrat behind the curtain. I imagine a, a sort of Dorothy saying, who's that behind the curtain kind of a thing. The Kazakhstan state had been known as a brutal dictatorship for this entire period with an atrocious human rights record. It, there were very few people arguing with this. This was, this was not a, a gentle state that was full of free press and people allowed to protest and anything like that. So the fact that these protests were happening at all... They maintained a relatively long period of stability for an autocratic state by having brutal crackdowns on any type of unrest that took place. That's what they did. And not even unrest. Like, if you said anything... So the fact that these people were coming out into the streets was in itself really remarkable. Not only in 2018, but through into 2020. And right now, these are also even more remarkable. So that really brings us to the next part, which is that by the 4th and 5th of January, protests with thousands of people were sweeping, sweeping across Kazakhstan the government resigned. And by the government resigned, that means that the cabinet of the state had resigned. All of the ministers, everybody said, we're out. Tokayev said, no, you're not. Right. <laughs> right. You can't quit. <laughs> no, you're not. Not until we find replacements. That's what he said. That's, I mean, in so many words, that's, that's how that panned out. And to this exact moment, that's where it's left off. So it's unclear... If they've actually resigned, or if they can resign. What happens when you resign, but you're not allowed to? That really brings us to the important part here, which is that we have this dictator for decades. He kind of hands off power, but it's not really handing off power to the next person. This person takes an uprising, the advantage of the uprising, and all of a sudden... We have this new situation where he's taking the power that he nominally had, I guess. He's put into the office of the president, probably as some sort of a figurehead, while Nazarbayev maintains power behind the scenes, or, you know, maybe takes a smaller role, but still is in charge as the, the head of national security. But as soon as the uprisings on the 5th really came to a boil, Tokayev decides that he's going to fire uh, Nazarbayev and Nazarbayev's nephew. And we haven't seen Nazarbayev 
since then. We haven't seen him. There's speculation that he's out of the country. Who knows what's happened to him? It's kind of a coup in the sense that somebody who didn't really have power now has power. But it's only but they a, nominally had the power that they were supposed right, to have, kind of. It's only a coup <laughs> if a coup means that when the president takes power from the ex-president who just refuses to leave the government after 30 years. <laughs> and we've seen it. I mean, he, he ousted and took over Nur Sultan's position as chairman of the Secretary Council. He also sacked Karim Mazamov. A, he was uh, the head of the National Security Committee. I mean, think of these is, job titles. Okay, so Nazarbayev is the chairman of the National of the Security Council, but Masimov is the head of the National Security Committee. Yeah, and, and, and on these top are, of these that, are like job titles and, for the sake of job titles. Yeah, for sure. And 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 the domestic. This is the domestic intelligence a- agency. It's like NSA meets. CIA meets KGB. It's all of it. Uh, but I mean, they, it's they, basically secret. They police. called it the KNB. The secret. Yeah, exactly. And 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 he dismissed the prime minister appointed by Nazarbayev as well. Uh, so it, 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 the whole thing is is really incredible in in how sweeping it is. Here, here's where we come to the angle of modern politics in the 21st century. Whenever something happens that you don't like. It's never your own unhappy citizens who do those things. It's terrorist activities and foreign interference. That's exactly it. That's what Tokayev said. It is outside agitators. The whole thing. And I wonder to what degree. And he made a whole press statement about this. He said it's all those things. It's terrorists. It's it's outside agitators. This is a this is a terrorist plot. But I wonder to what degree. I think that on the one hand. He's he's saying the term terrorist so that he can invoke certain treaties and certain agreements and things like that. And I think, on the other hand, terrorist is the favorite word of any autocrat who wants to say... Since 9-11, terrorist has been the go-to word for dissident... Or, or anybody who's opposed to your state yeah. or your government. And uh, which obviously to anybody who's been alive for this period of time, that was the whole fucking point of the, quote, war on terror. You can't make a war on asymmetrical warfare as a praxis. That's not a country. That's not a group of people. They're like, you can't make a war no, on it's terror. It's like a fucking Everybody war on drugs. Ne- yeah. <laughs> you can't, I mean, it's like you might as well have a war on light fixtures. <laughs> I mean, it's the same fucking thing. Something that should be pointed out before we, we, we keep talking about what's happening in Kazakhstan is the parallel with the the way that the the kind of fringe right wing, maybe the alt-right in the United States has done exactly the same thing with the riot at the Capitol building on January 6th last year. You saw this initial wave of support from public uh, right-wing figures for what happened at the Capitol building. And then you saw this kind of rollback of that support. And you heard people talking about, oh no, it's Antifa. Antifa did all that stuff because 
Donald Trump's real supporters would never do anything like that. And you heard that from everybody. Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Everybody was saying exactly the same shit. You know, they decided to like kind of double down on the outside agitator idea by invoking the deep state and saying that it was FBI that was that was inciting violence. FBI and now it's a plants. false flag operation. And it's some from kind the of inside. a false flag operation. I mean, all the, the, the favorite the favorite catchphrases of people who don't ever want to take responsibility for all the bullshit that they put out into the world. And so they basically like th- this is a common tactic that you see in these like. And by the way, Antifa would have worn masks because we always do. We pandemic or not. He says we. <laughs> you hear him. He said he said we. He's the general in the Antifa army. It's like it's like a Kentucky, <laughs> it's like being a Kentucky colonel. It's an honorary position. The, I I don't know if you. So here's the thing between Portland and Seattle, it, it's kind of like Santa Fe and Albuquerque, where you know you you would think that the larger city is the one that's the capital, but it's the other one that's the capital. But you know, one's kind of really more important. You mean you mean I, the I'm Socialist Republic of Seattle? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean what. Does anybody call it anything else? Uh, they, no, it's the People's Socialist. <laughs> okay, that that joke's done. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this next part. So Tokiev then declared that the protests were terror activities and it was foreign interference. We've covered this ground. This brings us to today, at the time that we're recording this, at least Thursday. Tokiev asked the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO, a military alliance of Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan, to intervene. So this this treaty organization is usually billed as something similar to a NATO type of arrangement, you know, but for former Soviet uh, socialist republics. The it is also usually identified that it is primarily led by Russia, and I think that is an understatement. When you look at the the military power and economic power of all of these nations involved in the CTO, the CSTO it is very clear to see that Russia is entirely in charge of everything that it does. This is a (laughs) Russian organization. I I mean, much more so than the, the out, the sort of like uh, the out of proportion influence that the United States has over NATO. Russia has a much more significant proportion of influence over the collective security treaty organization. So a a joint Russian Belarusian Belarusian Armenian like uh force landed in in Kazakhstan to suppress all of this unrest. Now right now Armenia is the uh you know because you know similar to the UN Security Council that has a rotating seat Armenia is currently in charge of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. That really doesn't mean shit. (laughs) (laughs) It does not mean a goddamn Regardless of who's in charge of it, Russia is in charge of it. 
They provide the bulk of the financing and the bulk of the military force. I mean, Armenia is ostensibly in charge, but I think they've contributed something like 40 soldiers to this security force compared to the couple (laughs) of hundred that are being contributed by Russia, who all paratrooped in and drove in in armored personnel carriers across the border from neighboring countries. It's It's also interesting to note that Russia is, during this, being very careful to not involve themselves in direct engagements, which, or at least from some of the things that I've yeah. read recently, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But what Russia is not interested in doing, as far as appears to be clear, at this, I mean, everything is changing moment by moment in this particular. We're talking about something that happened. Oh, oh, we we say less than a week, and we say it started on the first, but really everything has happened in the last forty eight hours. That I mean, that's when everything really accelerated to to give a sense of perspective here, and everything that we're we're speculating on and discussing is what we can get from a media blackout, internet blackout country in this period of of unrest. So it's it's extremely unclear. That caveat aside, it seems to be that Russia has an interest, as Russia typically does under Putin, in regional stability. That's what they did with Assad. Yeah. They don't give a shit about Assad. They want water access through Syria. Yeah. And uh, Russia typically typically always wants water access. They, if you If you look at a lot of their... Um, moves throughout history. They want they want water they access want has always been fucking important. Yeah, they want they seaport. want seaports. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that's, that's a, I mean, that's not just Russia. That's everybody. Everybody that's always everybody. wants seaports. that's everybody. Yeah, that's everybody. I mean, Syria but, doesn't but have a lot to a lot offer of of these here. other nations. You know, other than than some oil and seaports, and yeah. Russia has plenty of oil, a, but they need to get it out. Yeah, but but that's a. Uh, with Kazakhstan, their interest here is is chiefly, apparently, regional stability. And under Putin... Well, yeah, because Kazakhstan's the, landlocked. It's landlocked. And Putin has, has made it very clear that regional stability is very important to him. And that's why he liked Assad, besides the, the access to water. Um, and, and we can consider... Uh, plenty of others besides that but i think that in this case regional stability is the obvious go-to motivation here because that has been his game for decades sure it's it's not unclear i mean i'm not the first person to bring this up i'm not i'm not cracking cracking but we should keep talking along these lines this is how we should understand what's going on here yeah he likes regional stability and this means instability Right. For him. Yep. Which means shut this shit down. Shut this the fuck down. I mean... But but when they're sending them in, they don't want to appear as if they're repressing the populace directly from Moscow. Right. They don't necessarily typically give a shit, but they want it to seem as if it's not Moscow repressing the populace. Right. I, I think that that's what's being said in some of the circles that I've been reading. Yeah, something else about, you know, Kazakhstan that where 
the the U.S. governments or at least multinational corporations based in the U.S. and their interests intersect with with Russia's interests is that ExxonMobil and Chevron have invested tens of billions of dollars in Kazakhstan in their oil in their oil infrastructure. That's exactly where all like the region where they invested all of this money is exactly the same region where the unrest began. Yeah. So there is a U.S. angle here because we all we all know very well how much the petroleum industry in the U.S., how much influence it has over the government. This is yeah. so when it comes to what's happening in Kazakhstan, I, I like I guarantee that the Biden administration is looking at it closely and paying, you know, paying every attention to what's happening there. Because well, what's the really oil unique about so this strong. one, unlike a lot of the other areas, is that because the only way meaningfully into Kazakhstan is through China or Russia, yeah, this is so far outside of the sphere of Western influence, yeah, for the the usual NATO suspects that this is one where we have heard total fucking media silence. From the West. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll hear trinkets from BBC, uh, a little bit from NPR here and there, but it's it's an aside. But we're not really seeing the kind of Western attention on this that we would typically see from a major oil producing state. And I think I'm not saying that, that there's this hand in hand play with with media that's so direct, but part of what's happening here in my observation is that it's been widely understood in the global sphere that Kazakhstan is between China and Moscow both physically and geopolitically yeah and and that anything that happens there even if we wanted to do anything there's no way in yeah well no 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 there's nothing for the US to do as far as military intervention but the, but it is definitely a, a an area of interest for sure. Oh, very much, yeah. very much. I you mean, know, eyeballs are on Kazakhstan right now. Something, something that should not be, uh, that that shouldn't be overlooked while we're mentioning this is a like a very an important humanitarian issue going on in Kazakhstan is, and this is also a feature of any authoritarian regime. As soon as there is civil unrest is that in Kazakhstan, the internet has been shut down almost entirely since January 5th. That's the reason why there was this lull in Bitcoin mining. That's the reason that the whole Bitcoin mining was on anybody's radar at all, is that for the people who monitor that, they can see the change in the Bitcoin hash rate, which is the the number of, uh, of individual computers like, or actually, you know, the, the overall computing power that is currently crunching Bitcoin computations. It has gone down. And that's because at this point, Kazakhstan is number two. And since their Internet has been shut down, that means Bitcoin mining operations have ceased. That's just a, an indicator, though, the Bitcoin mining operators, uh, the Bitcoin mining operations. I mean, who gives a fuck? It doesn't matter. The important aspect of this is that the average citizens in Kazakhstan have no communication with the rest of the world. 
I mean, basically at this point, Kazakhstan is North Korea. Like the, the you know, the, the authoritarian nations have, you know, something of a kill switch where they can just cut off internet access to the outside world, which means that the yeah. infrastructure is still in place, but data transmission is, is interrupted. So the average person and in addition to that, phone lines have been have been uh, have been interrupted as well. So there's no phone communication for the most part with you know for the average citizen of Kazakhstan or internet access. We don't really know what's happening there unless a an on the ground journalist is able to get a report out. And the way that that report gets out can sometimes be a physical process, meaning like a like files on a USB drive or transmissions on a satellite phone or something like that. This, that is a scary situation in the 21st century when you have a country that can just go dark because an authoritarian regime can say so. And I, and I want to point out on that same note that as we're, as we're looking at recent examples of these site sorts of behaviors that we can also consider popular uprisings in other countries and note that just because it's a popular uprising does not necessarily mean that it's going to come to anything meaningful because when we no, of observe, course not yeah, yeah right <laughs> i i mean I, maybe i'm stating the obvious here right. but yeah. but but we we look at uh, I think of you know uh, uh, Sudan, Egypt, Libya, a number of other countries during the Arab Spring. Sudan right now is and and Egypt are are experiencing difficulties in terms of military governments and and the conflicts between those things. But even even with liberalization we don't necessarily see an improvement when we overthrow these autocracies where if we look at the neoliberal and when i say liberalization i mean introducing a state and capitalism right but specifically what i what i mean is neoliberalism which is typically what's introduced here yeah after the fall of the ussr and i think that this commentary that i'm making right now is most prescient for this state after the fall of the ussr what we saw during and after in terms of the what was called kleptocracy was neoliberalism run amok where the state assets were stole off and it was it was an extraordinarily I want to do it again. Where the state assets were sold off and you had a situation where you had a bunch of thugs and gangsters not only running the country, but taking everything that was left on a sinking ship. But we also observe that in these sorts of situations... We have international corporations ready to rush in and take everything in the exact same sort of a way. And when we have these sorts of opportunities for a people to take control and 
have sovereignty, if they're looking towards liberalization, I have observed on many occasions that it turns into neoliberalization. Yeah. Where it's just as bad, if not worse, as it was just before. And there's, there's, a, there's a quote that I want to look up uh, here that describes this very eloquently. But, but say what you're going to say while I'm looking it up. Well, the, the, the point that I wanted to make is that what the current situation was, or, you know, let me say that again. What the situation was in Kazakhstan until last week or so was the result of the kleptocracy gold rush that took place after the fall of the Soviet Union. That's that's what created this scenario in the first place. The Soviet Union fell, Kazakhstan being a being part of the USSR became separated from Russia and without a strong governmental control all the crooks rushed in and took everything that they could get their hands on. That's what's been going on since 1991. In the same way that that's what's been going on in Russia itself since 1991. All of the all of these kleptocrats rushed in and stole everything they could they could lay their hands on and now here we are. And the head kleptocrat was Vladimir Putin. That was the head yeah. that was the number one thief of everything was Putin. So, I mean, Putin, if you could accurately measure his wealth, it's probably by far the richest man in the world. Because he he controls all of that stuff. And he's used it to do nothing but enrich himself. I am sure that he is well richer than Elon Musk. I have very little... If we actually were able to accurately measure... If you were accurately able to measure the things that that he really controls, not just his property on paper, which when I read an article a couple of years ago, it was basically like a condo in some shitty town and a Land Rover. That was like... Those are the only possessions that he actually has to his name on paper. But what he actually controls is probably hundreds of billions of dollars of wealth. And but that's not measurable because nothing's on record. It's the same situation on a smaller scale in Kazakhstan, where you have a, a small collection of oligarchs that are have have been in the roles that they're in since the nation became in, like you know quote unquote independent. I mean, did they ever really become independent? Uh, independent of what really? They are still strongly under Russia's sphere of influence. So the the idea that that Kazakhstan is an independent nation from Russia is that's debatable. It really depends on what the criteria is that you're talking about. You know, like independent how really needs to be the question. The is Russia involved in day-to-day activities probably not. Is Russia involved in everything major that involves millions of dollars? Absolutely. We can understand it almost in the way that the Mongol Empire was run where they almost didn't give a shit about assimil- assimilation as much as pay your dues and make sure that we ultimately are in charge. This is the same system that's been going on in Central Asia for thousands of years. These former satellite countries are basically their they're satrapies of the former Soviet Union and now of Russia. 
they're they're client kingdoms. They are independent in the sense that they have a prime minister or a president or you know whatever whatever system of government that they've put down on paper. But really, Russia maintains control of all of this, which is why Russia cares so much about what happens in Kazakhstan, and they're so quick to provide military intervention. If the Kazakhstan government falls in this civil uprising, Russia is most afraid that it will be a cascading effect, like a domino effect in that region, with Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan going next. That's what they are concerned with. Because Kazakhstan was the most stable of all of those former satellite nations. And it was regarded as a, quote, success story of the former satellite countries. It was the example that the others were judged against. And then here we have government buildings set on fire, citizens marching against the presidential palace and burning cars in front of it. That's what's going on. You know, that's what's been going on there. That's why we've seen this dramatic crackdown. This quote, I think, is relevant to this. If you remove English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organization of the Socialist Republic, your efforts will be in vain. England will still rule you. She would rule you through her capitalists, through her landlords, through her financiers, through the whole array of commercial and individualist institutions she has planned in this country and watered with the tears of our mothers and the blood of our martyrs. I think if you have a national liberation, or if you have a state that becomes indistinct, independent of an empire. It seems to me that unless you're really liberated from the people that are controlling you, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just shuffling people around. And I think that's really what James Connolly was saying about England's control of Ireland. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. We truly appreciate all the support and feedback that we've received so far. It means everything to us. If you want to support the show and help us stay ad-free and independent, go to patreon.com forward slash wetwired. You can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast on social. 
This sparked protests in the town. There are going to be a lot of occasions throughout this episode. I think it's Janozen. Is it? I think so. Okay. Uh, but I do want to add this disclaimer throughout the remainder of this episode that Sean and I are going to do our absolute best. I have literally spent at least 10 minutes trying to practice <laughs> pronunciation before the podcast. This is not a joke. We are going to mangle Kazakh names throughout this entire segment. I struggle too because I frequently in my daily life, I struggle between the conflict of, on the one hand, if I know how to pronounce a name or a place of a thing or even a dish in the native tongue I can either look like an idiot or I can look like an asshole these are my two choices if I'm out at a restaurant I usually choose to pronounce it in the anglicized word but <laughs> sometimes I choose to look like an asshole I, I could tell you a uh, an aside where I uh, I was on the left bank in Paris and I was trying to order uh, eggs and toast. And I uh, I tried a couple of times. And the, the waiter finally just started speaking to me in English. <laughs> <laughs> he acted like he didn't understand me. I could say oof. <laughs> <laughs> and he responded, Oof. Yeah, right. <laughs> I want to dispel uh, for anybody listening that, you know, all the Americans listening at least, because Europeans know better than to have this stereotype. French people are not rude, they're incredibly warm, welcoming people. That's a ridiculous stereotype. Anybody who has traveled anywhere and encountered French people should know better. But unfortunately, most Americans don't ever go any place except for Orlando. So they don't know. Or Las Vegas. They have no idea that that stereotype is absolutely ridiculous. With one exception. If you go anywhere around Notre Dame... <laughs> Hotel de Ville or the left bank, then yes, everybody is a total raging asshole. And I, for good reason, because well, they're bombarded with stupidity and, every and of single course, second. There is that's that's the next part of this, is that yeah, there's a fucking explanation. They deal with nothing but idiotic tourists all the time. You know, I, I might add Montmartre to that too. You know, in the same group where you can find the rudest people. I got kicked out of a church in Montmartre. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the, the, the security guard, uh, you know, at the cathedral, he had, like, no patience whatsoever for an idiotic tourist. I was out of there. <laughs> I, I, I can, uh, as a aside to your aside, that was an aside to my aside. Boy, this is very meta right now. <laughs> we got levels. While here. I was in, while I was in gay Paris. <laughs> this is this this is a super stratum of my aside. <laughs> there were a couple of times when somebody would come up to me because of how I was walking and how I was dressed, and they assumed. 
that I lived in the city. And it took them about six sentences before they figured out that I had no idea where we were <laughs> All right, so or how to speak the language. <laughs> what my, One of my greatest like feelings of accomplishment as an American traveling in Paris on the metro because I, I basically like I mean I, I, I like in a way I sort of lived there for about a month because I had an apartment and I so I took the same route out of my apartment every day I was on the same train different times a day and going different places but I retraced a lot of the same steps over and over again I got very familiar with it so here I was I, I was staying near the American hospital and the and so I was on the train and this woman came up to me with, uh, I mean, with a, with a girl. I, I'm sure it was her daughter. And she was obviously an American woman. And as soon as she spoke, it was confirmed because she had this really thick Texas accent. And she was asking me for directions. And she started speaking to me in terrible French, like worse than mine, and <laughs> asking me for how she should get to this other place like what stop she should get off at and I listened for a for I let her finish the whole you know the whole question as it kind of like dragged out and I understood what she was saying in French but then I did the same thing that that waiter did to me on the left bank and I responded in English and <laughs> and obviously you know like being from New Mexico is like with my totally flat Anglo English and and she was just dumbstruck. She absolutely thought I was like this French guy. So I don't think I fooled anybody from France, but I fooled Americans traveling in France. Into oh, for sure. Into thinking I was for a sure. local. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's all for which we can hope. <laughs> all right, so... Back to the matter at hand. All right, so the word I believe but, is Janausen is the, is the name of the...